Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 11th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today I want to mention Betty Carr. She's a, a, a um, dear older sister in Britain. She's in our prayers. She has a... Um, a problem with skin cancer, and she needs to undergo surgery for the second time. Betty is um, 86 years old and still full of life. So we pray that she does well with that trial. Due to technical problems being suffered by Sven Longshanks, our co-host, the segment of Christogenia Europe, which we hope to have tomorrow, will have to be rescheduled for next week. Sven has um, problems with electricity outages where he lives. One thing I learned because of this is that people visiting libraries in Britain cannot get to the Christogenia website, which is um, incredible, but to be expected. The UK no brags that the, the find you call, I'm sorry the findlaw.uk website brags that the UK is known around the world for its respect for tolerance and free speech. That, along with other such idealistic statements found there, is little but Orwellian doublespeak. There's no free speech in Europe at all. Americans should take note that most of the so-called Western democracies have no free speech, and you can indeed go to prison simply for the dissemination of literature which reflects certain ideas. Once again, we continue our criticism of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies. Martin Luther would definitely be in prison if he was in the Germany of today. His essay was written in 1543. In past segments of this presentation, I have admitted not having read, and I still haven't read this entire document, before embarking on this criticism of Luther's work which nevertheless endeavors to offer a balanced assessment of Luther's theology as well as his criticisms of the Jews. In past segments, I surmise that Luther must have written this paper in response to Jewish proselytizing of Christians, and Luther had also said some things in the early chapters of his essay in confirmation of that. Looking ahead in preparation for this segment, I finally noticed that Luther had actually closed this essay by indicating that it was indeed written in response to a booklet in which a Jew demonstrates his skill in a debate with an absent Christian, as he himself describes it. The real problem, and this problem the recognition of this problem would help explain the position that we are in today as a people. And when I say we, of course, I mean white Christians. 
The real problem is that a Jew can publish books in a Christian society at all. Jews should have never been allowed to publish anything in a Christian society and disseminate it freely. That was a huge oversight on the part of Christians. Now today, Jews publish practically all of our society's books and practically all of our books having anything to do with history or religion, either blaspheming God in Christ or peddle some perverted, corrupted form of what they call Judeo-Christianity, as if that were really Christian. We can only imagine how truly upset Luther would be with that situation. Here is the two-edged sword. Martin Luther published his 95 Theses, the work which made him famous in 1517 in response to the edicts of the Roman Catholic Church's Fifth Lateran Council, and the Reformation was born anew. That same council had outlawed the publication of books unless those books were approved by a bishop which would have allowed the church to uphold and enforce previous prohibitions regarding the Bibles. Bibles were being published. The church didn't want Bibles published. They wanted control over the presses. The Fifth Lateran Council gave the bishops of Europe control over the presses. This was discussed at length in, in, in Christreich in relation to Revelation chapter 11. Of course, such laws would have also prevented the Jews in Europe from publishing their books against Christianity if the bishops were on a ball. So even in Luther's time, we can see that once a society dictates what information may be disseminated, that could have effects both good and bad. The good part, the Jews can't spread their lies. The bad part, Christians can't even spread the Bible because the Catholic Church was a tyranny. Christians everywhere shall one day realize that if a truly free society is to be maintained, it can only be maintained without Jews. And it can only be done in the absence of the other aliens. In our modern concept of democracy, the dogs and the wolves are allowed to vote and the sheep become dinner. The sheep are served up for dinner because we let the dogs and the wolves vote. For 500 years or better, the Jews were able to publish anything they wanted in Europe, anything they wanted here in America. Now the Jews are in control. And people in Britain can't go to a library to get to websites like Christogenia. Why? Because the Jews are in control because they only espouse ideals such as freedom of speech when they are not in control. Once they achieve control, they want to oppress the rights of all others. That is so clear in our current and, and modern history and in the situation we see, especially in Europe. And Christians still don't get it. Christians won't get it until Bolsheviks are knocking on their doors, dragging them out into the streets in the middle of the night and giving their houses to niggers 
that's when maybe Christians might start to get it. Somehow, I don't think so. From the last segment of our presentation on Luther's, on the Jews and their lives, where we finished with part seven of his essay, we see that Luther had an excellent interpretation of the Messianic 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and that unlike today's crazy evangelicals, Luther knew that all 70 weeks of that prophecy were fulfilled in the ministry of Christ on earth. Luther also correctly understood that the destruction of the city in that prophecy referred to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans in 70 AD. However, Luther, out of what we may esteem as naive Christian zeal, sought to make Christ the desire of all nations of Haggai 2.7, where we have demonstrated that by that analogy, the prophet was clearly only referring to the gold and silver, which are mentioned in Haggai 2.8. Christ is not the desire of all nations of Haggai. Most nations at that time, even the nations of Israel, were absolutely apostate and couldn't care about Christ. The Hebrew Scriptures, the promise of the Messiah. Luther will continue with his interpretation of prophecy, both good and bad, in order to refute the Jews of his time. It must be noted that Luther would have done better to rely upon the refutations of the Jews which are offered by Christ and the apostles themselves. The writers of our New Testament made much better refutations of the Jews from both scriptural and historical perspectives. However, it is clearly evident in his writings that Luther himself was heavily influenced by two Murano Jews. Murano meaning pig, because that's what converso Jews were called in Spain at the time. Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos. And Luther leans very, very heavily on arguments borrowed from them. Therefore, Luther was his blind to true Jewish identity as the Murano Jews whom he followed were blind to the words of our Redeemer. With this, we shall commence with our presentation and criticism of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, with part nine of Martin Luther's essay, which Luther opens up by commenting on the Jewish reaction to the Christian interpretations of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And Luther says, Oh, how ridiculous it seems to these circumcised saints. And of course, Luther's sarcastic appellation for the Jews is circumcised saints. That we accursed Goyim have interpreted and understand this saying thus, especially since we did not consult their rabbis, Talmudists, and Kakabites, whom they regard as more authoritative 
than all of scriptures, for they do a far better job of it. And Luther's reference to Cockabite seems to be a strange comparison of the modern Jews of his time to the followers of Simon Bar Kokhba, who he spoke about in part eight of his essay. That is what they say. Know therefore, I'm sorry, this is what they say. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This means ponder and understand it well that the word has gone forth that Jerusalem is to be restored. That is one point. Further, to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, this means until the time of King Cyrus, there shall be seven weeks. Luther is giving us the Jewish interpretation of Daniel chapter 9. And he says, that is another point. Further, for 62 weeks it shall be built again with walls and streets, but in a troubled time. That is another point. And after 62 weeks, the Messiah, that means King Agrippa, will be killed and will not be. This means he will be no king, etc. And Luther is explaining to us the interpretations of Daniel 9, which the Jews confronted him with. Daniel 9, verse 1, shows that Cyrus was already a king in Babylon. Therefore, Cyrus cannot be the marker for the first seven of Daniel's 70 weeks. Luther understands this later on. The confusion is based on a lot of misunderstanding. Darius, which we see the word Darius opens Daniel chapter 9, Darius is merely a title to the Persians, but the Greek writers employed the designation as the name of certain Persian kings that they remembered by that title, which is a title that the Persians used of many office holders. There are also chapters of Daniel which are clearly out of order. And, and have been out of order since before the Septuagint was created. That's um, absolutely apparent and easily recognized when we compare the opening lines of Daniel chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we hope one day to present the proper order of the chapters of Daniel. But the material which is in um, Daniel chapters 7 and 8 should definitely proceed the material in Daniel chapter 6. Luther goes on to say, it is indeed tiresome to discuss such confused lies and such tomfoolery, but I have to give our people occasion for pondering the devilish wantonness which the rabbis perpetrate with this splendid saying. So here you see how they separate the text where it should be read connectedly and join it where it should be separated. This is the way in which it should be connected. Know therefore, Luther is going to interpret Daniel 9 from verse 25 for us. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word about how Jerusalem is to be restored and rebuilt, 
to the coming of the Messiah. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. These words, I say, are to be joined together to form one complete text. Then follows, it shall be built again with walls and streets, but in a troubled time. This sentence, separate though it is, they connect with the foregoing words about the 62 weeks, so as to convey the meaning that the building of the walls and the streets will occupy 62 weeks. That is truly a, a knavish trick. It reminds me of the rascal of whom I once heard as a, as a young monk. He hacked the Lord's Prayer to pieces and rearranged it to read thus, our Father, hallowed be in heaven, thy name come, thy kingdom be done, thy will as in heaven, so also do on earth. Or as that ignorant priest read the lessons in the vigils from 1 Corinthians 15, and Luther gives a Latin quote, ubi est more stimulus, tuus stimulus autum mortis, Peccatum est virtus vero, etc. Evidently, Luther's priest was changing the punctuation to pervert the meaning of the sentences where Paul had more fully said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 and 56, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The, sin, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. While the great Uncial manuscripts, the Greek, did not employ punctuation as we know it, Greek grammar usually indicates what the punctuation should be, or at least narrows the possibilities. So we can't just take those Greek words without punctuation and make up our own. There are facets of Greek grammar which dictate for us the beginnings and endings of not all, but at least many of the sentences. Luther goes on to say, that is the way the Jews tear apart the text whenever they can, solely for the purpose of spoiling the words of Scripture for us Christians, although it serves no purpose for them either, for it teaches them nothing. It does not comfort them. It gives them nothing. It results in nothing but meaningless words. It is the same as if the angel had said nothing at all meaning Gabriel speaking to Daniel in Daniel 9. But they would rather surrender such comforting, joyous words and suffer the loss than to have them benefit us. Similarly, Bodenstein maliciously tore the words of the sacrament apart lest they prove useful to us. However, this will not help the rabbis those night herons and screech owls. With the help of God, we will bring their howling and lying to light. Let us take up the several parts in order. And Luther's going to get into details on Daniel chapter 9, which is fine, and the messianic prophecy there. This Bodenstein, this is um, an interesting fellow who merits more study. We can't do that for tonight's presentation, but I will um, 
try to put this on my list of projects for the future. Bodenstein, who is called Karlstadt in modern English encyclopedias, is Andreas Rudolf Bodenstein von Karlstadt, meaning that he was from Karlstadt. And he lived from 1486 to 1541. So he was already dead when Luther wrote this essay in 1543. He was a prominent German Christian theologian during the Protestant Reformation. Bodenstein actually wrote 151 theses against the corruption of the Roman Church and published them a year before Luther's famous 95 theses were published. He was every bit the reformer that Luther was, and he was a lot more extreme. He advocated such reforms as the abandonment of mandatory celibacy for priests long before Luther did, and he actually was bold enough to be married, and he was a priest, three years before Luther became married. Bodenstein was what we may call a lay priest or a lay pastor, meaning that he did not have a formal monastical education. He was, however, an academic with several, three doctoral degrees. On the surface, it seems that Luther remained the more popular because the ideas of Bodenstein were removed too far from tradition. It may suit us well to investigate his ideas in greater depth in the future. It seems that Bodenstein sought to desacramentalize the communion ritual, which we, identity Christians, should certainly agree with. There are no Christian sacraments. That's a Catholic pagan priest idea that was brought into Christianity when Rome paganized Christianity. Bodenstein sought to desacramentalize the communion ritual, and we should agree with that. He also sought, as Luther and others did, to remove the idols and the other trappings of the priesthood, such as the exalting garments worn by priests, the fancy robes. Bodenstein sought to remove them from the church entirely. Luther didn't quite make it. He also seemed to abandon Latin in favor of a German mass. We would also agree with those things. Luther was much more conservative in relation to Catholic sacraments and other traditions. And Luther only agreed with some of Bodenstein's Reformation ideas. Luther considered Bodenstein to be a dangerous fanatic. Like most priests... Luther seems to have considered the words of the famous Last Supper of Christ as both a, a sacrament and an incantation. And there are no incantations in Scripture. There are no incantations advocated in Scripture. In truth, Christianity should have none of those things. A study of Bodenstein's work, or at least what has been preserved of it, may be beneficial to understanding the development of modern Protestantism, especially since he was considered to be very influential 
and a considerable influence on the later Anabaptist movement and on Zwingli and people like that. Luther was, however, correct in describing the howling and lying of the Jews. Luther continues by arguing over minute details of interpretation in Daniel chapter 9, especially in verse 25. And I'll, I will um, take a second here to paste Bodenstein's proper name into the chat rooms in case people want to um, investigate him further. I think he merits investigation. Luther wrote several papers against Bodenstein during his career. Luther also helped Bodenstein out of a jam when his life was in danger, but he forced him to make a recantation in order to help him. Luther was... Um, a stern fellow, to say the least. He was also, in many respects, Martin Luther was also a, an impenitent Catholic. He clung to, even though he saw Martin Luther, and we'll talk about this at length towards the end of the series, even though he saw a lot of the things that the Roman church was doing wrong, and a lot of the corruption and a lot of the things that were just plain evil, because some things the Roman church was doing at that time, the acceptance of usury and, and, and the, um, the extortion of parishioners with indulgences and things like that were just plain evil. And Luther rightly sought to correct that, and when he couldn't correct that within the church, that's when the Lutheran Reformation, if I have to call it Lutheran, because he was the prevailing religious mind in Germany during the Reformation. That's when the Reformation was sparked, was when Luther's 95 Theses could not correct the Catholic Church and were soundly rejected. The people of Germany were going to continue to be extorted and oppressed by the Roman Catholics and the German, some of the German princes and German reformers would not stand for that. Luther was very brave in risking his life to stand against the corruption of Rome, but Luther was also a Catholic in most other respects. The sacraments that the um, the, the, the exalted position of the priests and, and a lot of things like that, Luther sought to maintain. And, and those things, they're not Christian. He did rightly despise the idolatry and the icons and got rid of them. So he did some good things, but he was only a halfway, a halfway station maintaining a lot of the um, traditions of the mass and the priesthood kept him, or, or I think, earned him greater political favor than Bodenstein, who really wanted to tear it all down, it seems to me, and, and to bring everything down to the level that it should be at, 
because priests, well, Christianity should not have a priesthood as the Catholics have a priesthood. They shouldn't have it at all. Christianity shouldn't be taught in Latin. It should be taught in the vernacular language. That's why the apostles were given the ability to speak in tongues in order to spread the gospel. There's a lot of problems with the Catholic ideas that Luther maintained. I don't know how far Bodenstein went, or for every reason that Luther despised him, it would be interesting to check that out. So I hope to do that one day in the near future. I don't know how much of Bodenstein's work has survived, if any. I do know from my, from my surface research in preparation for tonight's program on Bodenstein that some of his work is still extant. It would be interesting to see how much. Back to Martin Luther, talking about the Jewish interpretations of Daniel chapter 9. First, I want to ask the Hebraists, and by that he must mean the people who understand the Hebrew language, and, and most of them at this time happen to be Jews, or at least they claim to understand the Hebrew language. Let's put it that way. First, I want to ask the Hebraists whether the word intelligae, which means to know, it's a Latin word. Luther's asking about Latin terms. I, I don't know why he's asking the Hebraists about Latin terms, but he is. Whether the word intelligae is construed with the word de, which means from, in any other place in Scripture. I have not found any, and this seems to me quite arbitrary. If it is to mean day, as in the phrase de subjecta materia, the Hebrew uses the preposition al, just as the Latin uses the word super, also a preposition, multa super priamo, etc. I know very well, however, that the Jews cannot prove that such a construction obtains here. The biblical examples agree that it stands as an absolute, independently, meaning the word intelligae. But to ascribe something to God maliciously, of which one is uncertain, and which one cannot prove, is tantamount to tempting him and giving him the lie. Now, now I don't know what... Luther's really talking about here. He might be referencing Hebrew words with Latin terms, which uh, he translated on the fly. Maybe he is looking at the Hebrew. But the copies of the Latin Vulgate, which are available to me, and there are several online, have the phrase, Scito ergo et anima verte. And Scito means to know. It's a synonym, in a, in a sense, for intelligae, but intelligae is not the word in the, in the Vulgate copies of Daniel chapter 9. It's skito. And um, skito ergo et anima verte may be rendered as, therefore, inquire and observe. Even though the popular translations of Daniel have, therefore, know and understand, which it, the, the phrase could be um, translated in that, in that way. However, 
that would be a secondary definition of both words, of both verbs, skito and anima verte. Back to Luther. Now let us see how they tear the text apart. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the word that Jerusalem will again be built. This, they claim, does not speak of the beginning of the 70 weeks, but of the word that has gone forth. Then follows to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince. There shall be seven weeks. Now, it is in agreement with the customary usage of all languages that the word, donek, and, and that's a Latin word also, D-O-N-E-C, until or to, or to presupposes a beginning. However, the Jews are saying it none. They refuse to have the text read from the beginning of the word to the coming of Messiah. I must draw an analogy. This is a, um, an obfuscated analogy, but we have to follow along with Luther. If someone on St. Gall Square here in Wittenberg, we're to tell you, you have heard a sermon based on God's word, declaring that the church is holy. Ponder this and mark it well. All right? You look at him expectantly to hear what else he has to say, for he does, not, for he does have more to say. You assume that from the words, ponder this and mark it well. Then he abruptly blurts out, there are still seven weeks until Michaelmas, or it is a distance of three miles to Halle. Here you would look at him and say, what sense is there in that? Are you crazy? Are the seven weeks to begin now on the marketplace, or are the three miles to begin in Wittenberg? No, he would reply. You must understand this to mean from the day of St. Lawrence to Michaelmas, and from Bitterfield to Halle. In other words, Luther's saying that in the conversation, you don't know where to start. And that's how the Jews interpret Daniel 9.25, that they don't actually really know where, where to start the 70 weeks. They only look for something convenient in their own history as to where to end it, right? At this point, you would be tempted to rejoin, go plant a kiss of peace on a sow's rump. Where did you learn to jabber so foolishly? And what did the seven weeks have to do with your statement that I should note well the sermon that I heard in Wittenberg? The rabbis treat the angel Gabriel's words in the same way. They make his speech read thus, there are seven weeks until the Messiah. Suppose now, Daniel replies, my dear Gabriel, what do you mean? Are the seven weeks to begin now that you are speaking with me? No, he says. You must understand this to mean that they begin with the destruction of Jerusalem. Thank you, indeed, you noble, circumcised rabbis, for teaching the angel Gabriel to speak as though he were unable to tell of the beginning of the seven weeks, which is all important, as well as of the middle and the end of them. No, Daniel is to assume it. This is just nonsense. Shame on you, 
you vile rabbis, to attribute this foolish talk of yours to the angel of God. With this you disgrace yourselves and convict yourselves of being malicious liars and blasphemers of God's words. But this is just the grammatical side of the matter. Let us now study the theological aspect. These holy, circumcised ravens, and Luther's always addressing them rather sarcastically, say that the 70 weeks begin with the first destruction of Jerusalem and end with its second destruction. What better method could they have pursued for arriving at this conclusion than to close their eyes and ears, ignore scripture and the history books, and let their imagination run freely, saying, this is the way it seems right to us, and we insist upon it. Therefore, it follows that God and his angel must agree with us. How could we be wrong? We are the ravens who are able to teach God and the angels. Now, Luther's assessment is correct that the ideas expressed in what we see as Daniel 9.25 cannot be dissected in the manner in which the rabbis have attempted and that the Jews tortured a language in order to pervert the original sense so that they may interpret it in a manner more convenient to them. I've seen a lot of identity Christians do the same thing, especially about Isaiah 13, Zechariah 14, and um, Deuteronomy 23.2. It is unfortunate, however, that Luther did the same thing with his own arguments in defense of Christianity, notably at Genesis 49.10 and at Haggai 2.7. The Jews do it to blaspheme the Messiah, and Luther did it to exalt him. Oh, Luther continues, Oh, what a base, vexatious, blasphemous people that cannot merit the Messiah with such penitence. And of course, once again, Luther is being sarcastic. But let us listen to their wisdom. The 70 weeks begin with the destruction of Jerusalem by the king of Babylon. From that event until the coming of the Messiah, the prince, that is, King Cyrus, are seven weeks. Now tell me, where is this written? This is, must reflect how the Jews are in part interpreting Daniel 9. And this is what Luther is countering. Now tell me, where is this written? Nowhere. Who has said it? Markolf the, the Mockingbird. Who else might say or write it? Luther mentions somebody named Markolf here, M-A-R-K-O-L-F. And on the surface, Markov may seem to be one of the Jews with whom Luther is disputing, but he is not. Luther calls him a mockingbird. So Markov is ostensibly a Christian who followed the Jews in their assessment of this prophecy in Daniel. And this, is, this, is, um, this gives us insight into um, how poor Christian biblical exegesis was in the Middle Ages. Markov is a Christian who followed the Jews in their assessment of 
this prophecy in Daniel. And this is proven later in the same chapter of Luther's essay, where the reformer refers to the Archbishop of Mainz as a Roman Catholic relic, but does not mention him by name. When we look at this name Markle and investigate who it belonged to, it belonged to an Archbishop of Mainz in the 12th century AD, 400 years before Luther's own time. And that must be who he is referring to. Markov, of course, is a German name. However, other than that, we don't know much at all about Markov. And um, the reference is rather obscure. If Luther did not, later in his essay, mention the Bishop of Mainz, then who this Markov was may have escaped us, or escaped me, let me admit that. In the beginning of this ninth chapter, these are Luther's words, we're at the beginning of um, part nine of his essay. In the beginning of this ninth chapter stands Daniel's, I'm sorry, he's referring to Daniel chapter nine. I'm being silly. Both events are true. Stands Daniel's clear and plain statement that the revelation regarding the 70 weeks had come to him in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. Now that's what the opening verse in Daniel chapter 9 says. The messianic prophecy at the end of chapter 9 is certainly still confluent with that statement. Luther doesn't go so far as to say that um, Darius the Mede is Cyrus, but he certainly is. A statement that the revelation regarding the 70 weeks had come to him in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, who had conquered the Babylonian kingdom, which event had been preceded by the first destruction of Jerusalem 70 years earlier. For Daniel clearly states that 70 years of the devastation had been fulfilled in accordance with Jeremiah 29.10. This we also read in 2 Chronicles, the last chapter, 36.22. And yet these two clear passages of Scripture, Daniel 9 and 2 Chronicles 36, must be accounted as lies by the rabbis. They insist that they are right and that the 70 weeks must have begun 70 years before they were revealed to Daniel. Isn't that great? Now go and believe the rabbis, those ignorant, untutored asses who, ne who look neither at the scriptures nor at the history books and who spew forth from their vicious mouth whatever they choose against God and angels. For they herewith stand openly convicted of their lies and their erring arbitrariness. Since the 70 weeks which were revealed in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede cannot begin 70 years previously with the destruction of Jerusalem, all their lies founded on this are simultaneously refuted. And this verse of Daniel regarding the 70 weeks 
must remain for us undefiled and unadulterated. No thanks to them. Eternal disgrace will be their reward for this impertinent and patient lie. With this lie, another one also collapses. Namely, their claim that the words about the Messiah, the Prince, refer to King Cyrus, who supposedly appeared seven weeks after the destruction, although in fact he came ten weeks, that is, seventy years after the destruction. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, Daniel 9, and Ezra 1. Even if we would assume which is impossible, that the 70 weeks began with the destruction of Jerusalem, we could still not justify this stupid lie. And with this, the third lie collapses. For they say that Cyrus came 52 years after the destruction, the equivalent of seven weeks and three years, or seven and a half weeks. Thus, they tear three years, or half a week, from the 62 weeks and add them to the first seven weeks. It is, it is as though the angel were such a consummate fool or child that he could not count up to seven and says seven when he should say seven and a half. Why do they do this? So that we might perceive how they indulge in lies for the purpose of tearing apart and turning upside down God's word for us. Therefore, they insist that Cyrus came seven and a half weeks, which they call seven weeks, after the destruction. Whereas, as was said, he really came ten weeks, i.e. 70 years later. Nor does the angel tolerate that these weeks being mangled and mutilated, subtracting three years from one and leaving it only four years, and adding to the one that has seven years, three more, making it ten years, or one and a half weeks. For he says that the seventy weeks are to be taken exactly. They are counted and reckoned precisely. Much less does he, referring to the angel, speaking to Daniel, much less does he tolerate the fourth lie, that Cyrus is here called the Messiah, even if the other lies were to be upheld, to the effect that Cyrus had appeared after seven weeks, that is, after 52 years, which is really seven and a half weeks. For we find the unmistakable and simple words of the angel, seven, 70 weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city. Daniel 9:24. He means to say, in other chapters I spoke of strange people and kings, but in this verse concerning the 70 weeks, I am speaking of your people and of your city and of your Messiah, and whoever refers this to a different people and to different kings is a wanton, incorrigible liar. Actually, Cyrus destroyed Babylon perhaps 47 years after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. But Luther is right that Daniel's words in Daniel chapter 9 in this messianic prophecy only apply to Judah and to Jerusalem and to the Hebrew Messiah, who is certainly not Cyrus. The fourth lie is followed by the fifth, 
in which they divorced the seven weeks from the 62. But these belong together, and there is no reason to separate them, especially since the lie regarding King Cyrus miscarried. It was for this reason that they severed the seven from the 62 weeks so that they could give him seven, that is seven and a half, weeks. In biblical Hebrew, it is customary to count the years thus. First, to give the one, then the other number of years, but with both placed together. We find many illustrations for this in Genesis 5 and 11, where references made to the deceased fathers. For instance, when Seth had lived five years and a hundred years, he became the father of Enosh. Seth lived after the birth of Enosh seven years and eight hundred years, Genesis 5-6. Similar, similarly, Genesis 11, Eber lived after the birth of Peleg, 30 years and 400 years. Well, Luther is comparing this literary style to Daniel chapter 9, where it says seven weeks and 62 weeks, insisting that they should be added up together to equal 69 weeks. Or 70, when we read the rest of Daniel chapter 9. Eber lived after the birth of Peleg, 30 years and 400 years. And Genesis 25, Abraham lived 100 years, 70 years, and 5 years. From these illustrations, one can easily see how arbitrary it is to separate the 7 years from the 62 years in this verse. Or 7 weeks from 62 weeks. And the gloss is in the text. Admittedly, I still have not been able to determine why the 69 weeks of Daniel chapter 9 are split into groups of 7 and 62. From the chronology of Daniel's 70 weeks, which is outlined at Christogenia, the 7 weeks is from about 457 B.C., the return of Ezra, with the culmination, the issuance of the commandment to, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The, his, the seven weeks would start in 457 B.C. and end about 408 B.C., seven weeks of seven years, a day being a year in prophecy, the 70 weeks are 490 years. Seven weeks is 49 years. The seven weeks would be 457 to 408 B.C. The history of Judea is very poorly documented during this period. There's very little we know about the history of Judea and Jerusalem after Ezra's book is finished all the way to the time of Alexander the Great. And we know very little from the time of Alexander the Great all the way to the time of Simon and Judah Maccabee, the Hasmonean dynasty, and the um, Maccabean revolt, which we began 
about 165 BC. So there's um, very little known of the history of Judea from the time of Ezra and just after 457 BC for 300 years until the beginning of the books of the Maccabees. There's not barely any history recorded in Judea. There's a lot of um, general Greek and Roman history available that cover that period that talk about the East, the Persian Empire, the Parthians, the, the, um, the, the conquests and, and extent of Alexander's empire in a general sense, but there's no detailed histories or scripture from Judea that tell us about what's happening there internally. Nothing. Zero. 300 years missing. So we can't really determine why the 69 weeks, the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy are split into groups of 7 and 62 because the history of Judea is so poorly documented during this period. It is difficult to find any event of significance which may be perceived as a boundary marker. Back to Luther. The Latin and German languages prevent such a disruption nicely, since they do not repeat the little word year so often. Latin and German do not. The meaning, Luther is meaning so often as the Hebrew. The Hebrew does explicitly repeat that word years. Luther says that the Latin and German read the number connectedly, saying Abraham lived 175 years. And that's almost how the um, King James reads it. The King James reads it 103 score and 15 years. The literal Hebrew, if we were to translate it word for word, has that Abraham lived 100 years and 70 years and five years. That's what Luther's talking about here. And we wouldn't say that. In a modern English translation, we, we, we would say Abraham lived 175 years. The Hebrew says literally Abraham lived 100 years and 70 years and five years. Luther goes on to say, in that way, meaning if they were just read as we would normally, 175 years. In that way, these words also are to be taken. From the going forth of the word to the coming of the Messiah, the prince, there are seven weeks and 62 weeks. These two numbers belong together and compose one number to the coming of the Messiah. The angel has a reason for designating the entire sum of years as seven weeks and 62 weeks. He might have spoken of nine weeks and 60 weeks, or found many different ways to name such a sum, such as five weeks and 64 weeks, or six weeks and 63 weeks, etc. He must have the seven weeks for the construction of the walls and streets of Jerusalem, and he must have the 62 up to the last week, which is all important, for in it the Messiah will die, fulfill the covenant, 
etc. And Luther is also making assumptions in the search of an answer. But the real reason for the splitting of the 7 and 62 weeks are not yet sufficiently explained. Luther is right, however, in his, in, in his insistence that the reference is to 69 consecutive weeks as the Hebrew usage everywhere indicates. In Hebrew, Abraham lived for 100 years and 70 years and five years, but they were all consecutive years. He didn't live for 100 years and die for a while and then live 70 more and die for a while and then live five. So that Hebrew usage, while we would find it odd to state it that way in English all the time, well, the Hebrew usage everywhere does insist that the terms are consecutive. Abraham lived all at once for 175 years. So the 62 and the 7 weeks are also consecutive. And that's a good argument on Luther's part based on that odd feature of Hebrew grammar. Then comes the sixth lie, which says that the walls and streets of Jerusalem were rebuilt for 62 weeks minus three years. That would be up to the last week, after which, as they lie for the seventh time, Jerusalem was destroyed. For with the last week, the 70 weeks are ended. According to this, Jerusalem had not stood again for longer than one week which means seven years. Go ahead, Jew, lie boldly and ashamedly. Luther's attacking the Jews for their um, taking of the 62 weeks and putting that with the building period of Jerusalem, which would mean that it took them 483 years, perhaps, or something crazy like that, to build the city. And my multiplication isn't very good. 62 times 7, 454 or something like that. I don't even know. Go ahead, you. Lie boldly and unashamedly. Nehemiah stands against you with his book and testifies that he built the wall, set the gates, and arranged the city, and that he himself gloriously consecrated it. Thus the temple was already completed in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. Ezra chapter 7. Alexander the Great was already, I'm sorry, Alexander the Great found the city of Jerusalem already long completed. After him, that villain Antiochus found the city even further restored, and the temple full of wealth, and he plundered them horribly. And Luther just basically um, admitted that our interpretation of Haggai 2, 7, and 8 are correct, and that his is wrong, and, and he, doesn't, um, he doesn't even realize he did that, that the desire of all nations that filled, the, that filled Haggai's temple were silver and gold, and that Antiochus did find the temple in a very wealthy state. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, in between the time of Ezra and the time of um, the Maccabees, 
the only things he really talks about in that interim period are the Esther account, which I do not accept as historical, but which the first century Pharisees did accept as historical, and Josephus was one of them, and an account of Alexander the Great's coming into Jerusalem and being very warmly treated and very highly regarded. That's it. In between Ezra and the Maccabees, Josephus doesn't have much more to say than that, even though he attempted to record all of the history of Jerusalem that he could. The error, and Luther reflects it here, the error that Ezra preceded Nehemiah is a very old error, and it is an error. It is a mistake. In fact, it can be proven that Nehemiah preceded Ezra. Luther is correct that by Nehemiah's time, the temple had been built, and Nehemiah built the walls, but Nehemiah did not complete the building of the city. The walls and the temple were in place, but, as the book of Ezra tells us later, there were not many buildings which had been built within those walls. The building of the city was left for Ezra to do sometime after Nehemiah. And when we examine history, we see that the building which was occurring in Nehemiah's time was actually interrupted by the Persian Wars. In his first six chapters, Ezra merely repeats the history of what had happened before him. To be understood chronologically, it can be proven that the entire book of Nehemiah should be inserted in between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. I first wrote that and gave my reasons for it in Clifton Emmerheiser's May 2009 Watchman's Teaching Letter, number 133, which is also one of those teaching letters for which podcasts are now available. Back to Martin Luther. The eighth rude lie follows. When they interpret the words of the angel... And after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be killed and shall have nothing, as if the Messiah refers to King Agrippa, who was killed and had nothing after his death. No king succeeded him. Why would it not be just as true to say that Emperor Nero was the Messiah? He was killed at one time and left no heirs. I believe that they would designate Markov, another reference to the 12th century bishop, or Theracides as the Messiah, rather than accept the true Messiah. Theracides, or Thersides, I'm sorry, T-H-E-R-S-I-T-E-S. Thersides was the name of a Greek soldier in Homer's Iliad. While it may seem unlikely that Luther is referring to him, the reformer did make other references to the ancient warrior 
in his writings. And here, Luther is being sarcastic. How can God, who loves the truth and who is the truth himself, tolerate such shameful open lies if these are intolerable, even to a person who is given to lies or is untruthful or is at least not so strict a lover of the truth. And this eighth lie is a multiple one in the first place because they assign different meanings to the word Messiah within such a brief passage. There, has, there he has to be Cirrus after the seven weeks, here Agrippa after the 62 weeks, just as though the angel were a fool who could point to a different Messiah with every other word. As we heard earlier, the angel is not referring to a foreign people and city, but says, I am speaking of your people and of your city. And of course, Agrippa was an Edomite, so he wasn't one of those people either. Therefore, we must conceive of the Messiah in this verse not as two different beings, but as one. Namely, the Messiah of this people and of this city, the Shiloh of Judah, who came after the scepter departed from Judah, the son of David, the Kemdah of Haggai. And in this one sentence, we see reflected two of Luther's own peculiar interpretations of Scripture, Genesis 49.10 and Haggai 2.7. We have already elaborated on the problems with those interpretations in the earlier segments of this series. This verse indeed refers to him, all others, meaning that Daniel 9 refers to Jesus Christ. And of course, concerning this aspect of Daniel 9. From what I understand about the evangelicals, they also supposedly see two messiahs or two different princes in Daniel chapter 9. And one of them is Christ and the other one is the Antichrist who comes in the world. And, and they have a an interpretation probably even worse than those of the Jews concerning Daniel chapter 9. Luther was basically ignorant of the modern Judeo-Christian interpretations of Daniel chapter 9. Luther correctly believed that all 70 of Daniel's weeks were fulfilled by the end of the ministry of Christ and that the people of the prince who came to destroy the city were the Romans destroying Jerusalem. Back to Luther. Since they now confess and have to confess that the Messiah was killed after the 62 weeks, that is, in the first year of the last week. And since this cannot have been Agrippa, as they would like to, like to have it in confirmation of their lie, nor anyone else, I am curious to learn where they might find one. It must be someone who lived before the expiration of the 72 weeks and who was killed after 62 weeks. Now, Luther is evidently 
counting a chronology that puts the crucifixion of Christ in the first week of Daniel's 70th week. And my chronologies put it in the fourth day. I'm sorry, in the first day of Daniel's 70th week. My chronology puts it in the fourth day, in the fourth year of Daniel's 70th week, which would be three and a half years into the ministry of Christ, which started right at the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th. I think it's um, inconsequential if the, if the chronology is off a year or two, but that's just a slight difference. It must be someone who lived before the expiration of the 70 weeks and who was killed after 62 weeks. Furthermore, as Gabriel says, he must have come from among their people, undoubtedly from the royal tribe of Judah. Now it is certain that since Herod's time, they had had no king who was a member of their people or race. But on the other hand, it is just as certain that Gabriel must be believed with his statement regarding a Messiah of their nation. How is this difficulty to be solved? And I would say that the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 is certainly the most striking and succinct refutation of Judaism in the Old Testament. There's no doubt. And Luther also understood that. If Christ is not the Messiah of Daniel who came and was cut off before the destruction of Jerusalem, then the Jews can never have a Messiah. And we see that the Jews themselves today basically admit that, and now they claim to be their own Messiah. And if Christians... Don't, don't one day wake up to the treachery of these Jew bastards. Then that could very well happen. Fortunately for us, it's not in the hands of today's Christians. It's in the hands of God, and he knows what's going on. And the Jews will not prevail. Luther goes on to say, and there is more. They themselves confess that they had no Messiah. That is, no anointed king. Messiah means the anointed one. Between the first and the last destruction of Jerusalem, for the sacred anointing oil, of which Moses writes in Exodus 30:22, with which kings and priests were anointed, no longer existed after the first destruction. Consequently, Zedekiah was the last anointed king. His descendants were princes, not kings. Down to the time of Herod, when the scepter departed and Shiloh, the true Messiah, was to appear. And here Luther goes off of the um, biblical history track once again. Zedekiah was the last anointed king of Judah. But after the king of Babylon, had destroyed Jerusalem and had taken Zedekiah and had his son slain before him. 
and had his own eyes put out and threw him in prison in Babylon until the day of his death, which is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 52. And Zedekiah's daughters were taken to Egypt with the prophet Jeremiah and Baruch, and there is no record of them or of any of Zedekiah's descendants in Jerusalem after that time. The king preceding Zedekiah, which was Jeconiah, who went to Babylon in captivity also, but had a little better time there. Jeconiah had descendants who did return to Jerusalem. And Jeconiah's descendants are recorded in the later genealogy of Christ. But Jeconiah and his descendants were precluded by the word of God in Jeremiah chapter 22 from ever again ruling in Judah. And that's why Joseph, the husband of Mary, who had every claim to the throne of David, was a carpenter instead. Because according to the word of God, that claim was revoked. Luther is purposely ignoring all of this in order to fulfill his own agenda, where he insists that the throne of David and the scepter of Judah were in Palestine until the time of Christ, when they certainly were not in Palestine. They existed forever, as the word of God said, but not in Palestine. Luther goes on to say, we want to purge out their lies completely with reference to Daniel saying, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, Daniel 9.27. That is the last week. They perpetrate the ninth lie, saying that the Romans agreed to a peace or a truce for this last week or seven years with the Jews. But since the Jews grew rebellious, the Romans returned in three years and destroyed Jerusalem. Now how does this bear out Gabriel, who says that the peace or truce, as they interpret the word covenant, is the last seven years. If it did not endure longer than three years, then Gabriel, who speaks of seven years, or last week, must be lying. Thus the mendacious hearts of these incorrigible liars falsely impung the truthfulness of the angel Gabriel. Alas, what truths? What peace? Read Josephus in the history books, and you will learn that the Romans slew many thousands of Jews a long time before, and that there was no peace up to the time when they were constrained to destroy Jerusalem and the country. As Luther refutes the Jews by properly illustrating the fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel 9, he also refutes the modern-day evangelicals who so insanely break this last week off of Daniel's prophecy and project it thousands of years into the future to, port- to pertain to some sort of supernatural antichrist. The evangelicals, well... They get their interpretations from the Jews, too. And that's what happens. The tenth and final lie concerns the assertion 
that the destruction of Jerusalem will last until the end of the strife. They interpret this as meaning until the strife of their Messiah, who will kill Gog and Magog and conquer the world. Now the Jews even got that part of Ezekiel right. It just doesn't pertain to Jews. This is a vicious, miserable lie which is dead before it is born. Let those who maintain that the Messiah appeared before the expiration of the 70 weeks be informed that such a lie was discredited as long as 1,500 years ago. Thus, the Jews do not retain a single word of Gabriel's statement intact. They pervert all his words into lies. With the exception of the angel's prophecy regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, but no one need to thank them for believing that and admitting the truth of it now. While they still inhabited Jerusalem, they believed this prophecy still less than they believe now in our Messiah. Although it was foretold plainly enough here in Daniel 9, as well as in Zechariah 14, if they were still dwelling in Jerusalem today, they would invent a hundred thousand lies before they would believe it, just as their ancestors did prior to the first destruction. The later were not persuaded by any prophet that the holy city of God would be laid waste. They harried them. They raved like mad dogs until they stood face to face with the fulfillment of the prophecy. This has always been a stick-necked stiff-necked, unbelieving, proud, base, incorrigible people, and so it ever remains. Now, Luther here wants to apply the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 14 to the first advent of Christ. However, Christ refused the scepter at his first advent. The passage to which Luther refers must include verse 9, where it says, And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Yahweh, and his name one. As it stands, quite unfortunately, the name of our God in the eyes of most Christians is still two, or even three, or even more. Zechariah 14 can only apply to the second advent of Christ. Luther does not elaborate on his interpretation of Zechariah 14 in the balance of his essay. But a lot of the problems with the interpretation of messianic prophecy are corrected in the Revelation where there are clearly two advents of Christ. The first advent as the suffering Messiah who would die for the sins of his people. That happened 2,000 years ago. The second advent as the conquering Messiah who would avenge his people and destroy his enemies. That's what Zechariah 14 is in, in part, is all about. That's what Revelation chapters 19 and 20 are all about. Actually, 17, 18, 19, and 20, or 18, 19, and 20 for the fall of Babylon. That's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 are all about. And that's what Luther's adversaries address here. 
where they talk about the destruction of Gog and Magog. Luther thought Christ would conquer the world through philosophy by persuading the whole world to the gospel. Luther was a universalist Catholic. The book of Revelation agrees with Ezekiel that Christ will have to come destroy most of the world. There are also comments in Jeremiah to that same effect. Luther missed them, being the universalist Catholic, which shows how old some of those errors are. He goes on to say, From all of this we gather that Daniel, with his 70 weeks, takes our position against the Jews' lies and folly, a position as reliable and firm as an iron wall. Messiah must have come before the termination of the 70 weeks and that he was killed and made alive again that he fulfilled God's covenant. For why should Daniel here be speaking of the Gentiles' covenant, which, moreover, did not even exist at the time? Luther sees a covenant for the Gentiles in the New Testament. Refuting the words of Paul, who quotes Jeremiah and says that the New Covenant is for the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Luther was a universalist Catholic. There's no covenant for Gentiles in the New Testament. There's a covenant for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah, which is extended to the nations. And the nations are defined by Paul in Romans chapter 4 as the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel. The nations that the children of Israel were to become as foretold in prophecy. Luther quotes Genesis 49.10 and misses all the prophecies in Genesis 48 and 49 regarding the children of Israel becoming many nations. So Luther is totally oblivious to covenant theology and makes up the fact. Well, I'm sorry. Makes up as fact that it's a covenant to Gentiles when in fact there is not anywhere in Scripture. To repeat that last sentence, from all of this we gather that Daniel with his 70 weeks takes our position against the Jews' lies and folly, a position as reliable and firm as an iron wall and an, and an immovable rock, affirming that the true Messiah must have come before the termination of the 70 weeks, that he was killed and made alive again, and that he fulfilled God's covenant. For why should Daniel here be speaking of the Gentiles' covenant, which, moreover, did not even exist at the time? And he fulfilled God's covenant 
in the last week, that he thereby took leave of the city and the people at the end of the seventy weeks, that the city was raised by the Romans shortly thereafter, that the people were destroyed with their government and all they had. All of this in accordance with the angel's words. Seventy weeks of years of decreed or reckoned concerning your people and your holy city. Daniel 9:24. But enough. Luther got the 70 weeks right and understood that they were all completed before the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And they certainly were. He goes on to say, No doubt it is necessary for the Jews to lie and to misinterpret in order to maintain their error over against such a clear and powerful text. Their previous lies broke down under their own weight, but even if they were to lie for a 100,000 years and call all the devils in to aid them, they would still come to naught. And there it is clear that Luther didn't understand that the words Jew and devil are synonymous as even Christ attests in John chapter 6, verse 70, for instance. For it is impossible to name a Messiah at the time of the 70 weeks, as Gabriel's revelation would necessitate, other than our Lord Jesus Christ. We are certain, sure, and cheerful about this, as we snap our fingers at the gates of hell and defy them, together with all the gates of the world and everything that wants to be or might be exalted, smart and wise against us. I, a plain insignificant saint in Christ, venture to oppose all of them single-handedly and to defend this viewpoint easily, comfortably, and gladly. However, it is impossible to convert the devil and his own nor are we commanded to attempt this. It suffices to uncover their lies and to reveal the truth. Whoever is not actuated to believe the truth for the sake of his own soul will surely not believe it for my sake. And Luther, again referring to the Jews as the people of the devil, but not going far enough and identifying them as actual devils, which they certainly are. Luther had written in the opening paragraphs of this essay, back in part one, that it was not his intent to convert the Jews, but only his earnest endeavor to expose their lies for the benefit of other Christians. As we've seen, in some regards, he does a very excellent job doing that, and in other regards where he... And I believe it's out of a zealous sort of naivety, or perhaps out of a naive sort of zeal, Luther twists certain scriptures to try to um, claim that they are messianic prophecies, and they are not. Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 is not a messianic prophecy. We will limit ourselves for the time being to these four texts. Those of Jacob, he's referring to Genesis 49.10. David, he's referring to the um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the promises 
to David that he discussed at length in parts four and five of this essay. Haggai, meaning Haggai 2.7, and Daniel, meaning Daniel chapter 9. We will limit ourselves for the time being to these four texts, those of Jacob, David, Haggai, and Daniel, wherein we see what a fine job the Jews have done these 1,500 years with Scripture, and what a fine job they still do, for their treatment of these texts parallels their treatment of all others, especially those that are in favor of us and our Messiah. These, of course, must be accounted as lies, whereas they themselves cannot err or be mistaken. However, they have not acquired a perfect mastery of the art of lying. They lie so clumsily and ineptly that anyone who is just a little observant can easily detect it. And it must be said that just because we have pointed out the faults which Luther himself made with some of the interpretations of these texts, that does not mean that the Jewish interpretations are right. The Jews clearly pervert all scripture beyond recognition. The Talmud and their own statements prove that over and over and over. Even we ourselves would rather live with Luther's faults and innovations than with the perverse lies of the Jews. Sadly, today, the perverse lies of the Jews have absconded Christianity and even prevail in the Lutheran church. What a pity. But as for us Christians, back to Luther, they stand as a terrifying example of God's wrath. As St. Paul declares in Romans 11, we must fear God and honor his word as long as the time of grace remains so that we do not meet with a similar or worse fate. We have seen this happen in the case of the papacy and of Muhammad. The example of the Jews demonstrates clearly how easily the devil can mislead people after they once have digressed from the proper understanding of Scripture into such blindness and darkness that it can be readily grasped and perceived simply by natural reason. Yes, even by irrational beasts. And yet they who daily teach and hear God's word do not recognize this darkness, but regard it as the true light. O Lord God, have mercy on us. To Luther, both the papacy and Muhammad were every bit the devils that the Jews were, and rightly so. What he may not have realized was that the papacy of his time was heavily infiltrated by converso Jews and that Islam and Muhammad, the impetus for the founding of his religion, was also the same Jewish devils. Jews basically wrote the Quran. If I had to refute all the other articles of the Jewish faith, I should be obliged to write against them as much and for as long a time as they have used for inventing their lies. That is, longer than 2,000 years. 
I stated earlier that they corrupt their circumcision with human ordinances and ruin their heritage with their arrogance. And of course, identity Christians understand something Luther did not. The Jews are truly Esau attempting to ruin the heritage of Jacob. Malachi chapter 1 is a testament of that. In the same manner, they also desecrate their Sabbath and all their festivals, in brief, all their life and all their deeds, whether they eat, drink, sleep, wake, stand, walk, dress, undress, fast, bathe, pray, or praise, are so sullied with rabbinical foul ordinances and unbelief that Moses can no longer be recognized among them. This corresponds to the situation of the papacy in our day, in which Christ and his word can hardly be recognized because of the great vermin of human ordinances. However, let this suffice for the time being on their lies against doctrine or faith. You know, the law, the law was meant to be a trap for those who claimed to be Judah, but who denied the Messiah. Therefore, no matter how well they keep the law and the Sabbaths, the Jews are only deceiving themselves. David wrote in the 16th, from verse 21, they gave me also gall for my meat. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Words reminiscent of the account of the crucifixion. This is a messianic prophecy. Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Paul cited the same thing in relation to those who rejected Christ in the 11th chapter of his epistle to the Romans, which Luther had just cited. He should have understood that those who claim to keep the law yet rejected the Messiah, the law exists for them to be a trap and a snare, to keep them in hypocrisy until the day they go to the lake of fire. In conclusion, we want to examine their lives against persons which, after all, do not make the doctrine either worse or better, whether the persons are pious or base. Specifically, we want to look at their lives about the person of our Lord, as well as those about his dear mother and about ourselves and all Christians. Evidently, Luther was reading the Talmud. These lies are such as the devil resorts to when he cannot assail the doctrine. And Luther refers to the typical behavior of Jews. 
to make ad hominem attacks against the messenger when they cannot confront or accept the truth of the message. He then turns against the person lying, maligning, cursing, and ranting against him. That is what the papists Beelzebub did to me when he was unable to refute my gospel. Luther refers to the gospel of Christ, which should belong to each and every Christian. He wrote that I was possessed of the devil, that I was a changeling, that my dear mother was a whore and a bathhouse attendant. Of course, no sooner had he written this than my gospel was destroyed and the papists carried the day. Similarly, John the Baptist and Christ himself were charged with having a devil. They were the called Samaritans, and shortly thereafter, John's and Christ's doctrine was shown to be false, and that of the Pharisees, true. The same thing happened to all the prophets. Recently also, when the stealthy, murdering arsonist of Wolfenbüttel who, next to the Archbishop of Mainz, is the Holy Roman Church's one relic and jewel, shamefully slandered and defamed the persons of the Elector of Saxony and the Landgrave of Hesse. Both were instantly doomed, but he, the holy man, the holy man king over all kings, was crowned with a diadem and gold so heavy that he could not bear it and had to flee. And, and by the um, reference to the Archbishop of Mainz, it's evident that the Markovs, whom Luther refers to earlier in this chapter, is certainly the 12th century Bishop of Mainz. Therefore, whenever you wish to win in an evil cause, as they do, and as the glib babblers do in court, with the silver or gold fever, when the silver or gold fever seizes them, scold and lie boldly about the person, and your cause will win out. It is like the mother who instructed her child, Dear son, if you cannot win otherwise, start a brawl. These are lies in which the liar does not fabricate or err in the chief question at issue as happens also in religious disputes, but nevertheless is well aware that he is lying and wants to lie against the person. This is what Jews do. He does not dream of proving his point, either by appearances or truth, and is unable to do so. And I must interject that this phenomenon that we see among the Jews, it is timeless. And we see it also among those who have infiltrated Christian identity today. When in fact, the true nature of the perpetrators is that they are the same old Jewish impersonators hiding behind yet another mask, the Novemberist is currently the most prominent of these. But the head clown at the Canaanite people's ministry is not far behind. The pervert in Missouri is another one. 
That is how the Jews, too, are acting in this instance. They blatantly inveigh and lie against and curse the person, against their own conscience. And that way they have long since won their case, so that God just had to listen to them. Already for 1,500 years, they have been sitting in Jerusalem in a golden city, as we can clearly see. And Luther, of course, is once again being sarcastic. They are the lords of the world, and all the Gentiles flock to them with their kemdah, their coats, pants, and shoes, and permit themselves to be slain by the noble lords and princes of Israel. And Luther is mistaking the Jews. For Israel, when the Jews are really devils, and the so-called Gentiles of Europe, they are Israel. Giving them land and people and all that they have, while the Jews curse, spit on, and malign the Goyim. And ironically, this is true, but the Jews aren't in Jerusalem. They're in London, New York, Rome, Constantinople, Vienna... Frankfurt, all day like sheep, those of true Israel are led to the slaughter. Luther continues his concluding paragraph of this chapter. And you can well imagine that if they would not lie so outrageously, curse, defame, blaspheme, and revile the persons, God would not have heard them and their cause would have been lost long ago. They would not be lords in Jerusalem today, but live dispersed over the world without seeing Jerusalem and making their living among the accursed goyim by means of lying, cheating, stealing, robbing, usury, and all sorts of other vices. So effective it is to curse the person if the cause in question is evil and therefore doomed. Consequently, if you have a poor cause to defend, do not overlook this example of the Jews. They are the noble princes of Israel who are capable of everything. When their cause is lost, they can still curse the goyim thoroughly. Luther is commended for accurately seeing and boldly describing the Jews for what they truly are. It is only unfortunate that he was not able to properly ascertain their true identity from Scripture. They are not Israel. They are the descendants. They are the descendants of those bastards who have eternally been the enemies of true Israel and the enemies of Yahweh our God. This concludes part nine of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lives. I will be here next Friday with 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Next Saturday, I will leave open to be announced. I'm going to try to get a um, primordial 2C line lesson together. I had three or four more of those I would like to do. I think, it might only be two, I think, from the material that I think I have tucked away in my head and in my books. I'm at a disadvantage right now that I only have access to half my books. It's going to stay that way for the next six to eight weeks. I'm going to forestall the German origin series that I hope to start this year 
until I do have access to all my books, until we are settled here in our new home in Panama City. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.